And we welcome you to the Monday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I am very excited indeed to be reconnecting with best-selling author Rick Beyer, who is co-author of a book that tells one of those stories that seems too amazing and incredible to be true, but in fact absolutely is true. A fascinating story of deception and deceit, but deception and deceit undertaken for the very best of reasons. The book in hand is titled The Ghost Army of World War II, How One Top Secret Unit Deceived the Enemy with Inflatable Tanks, Sound Effects, and Other Audacious Fakery. This is the story of a particular group of soldiers who had amazing talents and gifts far beyond what we typically think of uh, being required uh, of, of, of soldiers. And uh, at a very important point in the Second World War, these specially gifted soldiers engaged in indeed a ray, an array of, of fakery and trickery uh, to help deceive uh, our enemy. And of course, in the European theater of World War II, we are talking about Nazi Germany. And uh, the story of how all of this came about and was, uh, and was implemented is told in this really interesting story. And historian Rick Beyer uh, has also made a documentary film that essentially covers this very same, uh, same, same story. And uh, you have surely uh, encountered his work in what he has done for PBS, the History Channel, the National Geographic Channel, and the Smithsonian uh, Institution. And I am very, very excited to be able to uh, speak with Rick Beyer about this latest book, The Ghost Army of World War II, just released now in an updated version. Rick Beyer, we welcome you back to The Morning Show. Well, it's so great to connect with you again and to have a chance uh, uh, for for this uh, uh, this day, this Monday, to be able to talk about uh, this amazing World War II unit. And I called this your your most recent book. I suppose in some ways that's incorrect. Exactly when did this book come out, and uh, and in what ways uh, is it updated in this version that has just been published? So this book originally came out in 2015, and that was two years after the documentary film The Ghost Army premiered on PBS. And uh, and so the book came out, and almost immediately uh, at that point, I, w- I was getting, I had veterans uh, reaching out to me, families reaching out to me, and I was learning all sorts of new things. Um, so I thought I'd told the story, but I was meeting veterans that had new scrapbooks full of amazing images, or I was doing research at the Army Historical and Education Center in Pennsylvania and discovering new information, uh, and, and stuff was happening. We, were, we had an ongoing effort to uh, convince Congress to award this unit a Congressional Gold Medal. And a year or so, I went back to the publisher and I said, "Hey guys, let's let's do a let's do a new edition. Can we do a new edition and kind of update it?" And they said, "Sure, we can do a new edition and we'll add a chapter so that you can describe the things uh, that have happened since the book came out, stuff you've learned. We can include a bunch of new images because this is a very illustration-heavy book. Uh, and that's kind of how it came about. So we have a new chapter, 20 new photographs." Uh, new stories, uh, and then also the story 
of uh, our effort to convince Congress, our successful effort to convince Congress to award this unit a congressional gold medal. One of the uh, things you talk about at the very end of the book are, is the, the various sources from which you drew to uh, tell this story so very, very richly uh, beyond the interviews that you were uh, able to conduct with, I think, 22 uh, of, of, of the men who were part of, uh, of this special 23rd head, uh, headquarters, uh, special troops, uh, this, this unit. You also drew upon some other really interesting uh, material, which I'd love to have you just briefly talk about, including a, a, an official history of the 23rd headquarters special troops by one Frederick Fox. You have very, very high praise for this. Explain what this is and why it was of such uh, important value to you. Sure. Well, every, almost every unit in World War II uh, at the end of the war created an official history you know, of their activities. So this is part of the, how the Army would try to codify the lessons that they learned during the war. And the officer assigned to write the official history for the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops, which was the official name, of this deception unit, was uh, Fred Fox. And Fred Fox was a fascinating guy. He was Princeton, I think, class of 39. He'd been involved in musical theater there. He went to Hollywood. He thought he was going to be the next Jimmy Stewart, who's another Princeton graduate. Uh, and he ended up you know, writing baby food commercials and not making it in Hollywood. But when the Army put him in the Ghost Army, they put in someone with a very theatrical soul, uh, and he actually was one of the people that helped create special effects, which was their fourth dimension of deception, uh, kind of using impersonation and putting fake bumper markings on vehicles and fake uh, patches on their uniforms to impersonate the the, the units that they were uh, trying to pretend to be on the battlefield. And Fred Fox wrote this official history with a very light touch. I have to say that there probably is not another official history of a U.S. Army unit that is so whimsical. Uh, but yet at the same time, it's really, it's, it's the primary source document for anybody who is trying to write about this story because it covers the creation of this unit from beginning to end with occasional, you know, humorous asides and, and quotes. I quote from it a lot in the book. And, you know, after the war, uh, Fred Fox became a minister, he became a writer, he worked for Eisenhower. He tried to have this official history declassified, because it was classified and kept secret, so that he could write a book about the ghost army. And the army said no a couple of different times to him, despite his connections. Um, so it really was something that was secret until the 1990s, when finally the secrecy on this document was removed. And you can go look at it today at the National Archives, or actually it's also entirely reproduced on our website, ghostarmy.org, for people who want to go in and see the, the primary source document on the Ghost Army. Hmm. So this whole matter, uh, in a sense, was it exceptionally secretive? I mean, certainly it was secretive at the time. <laughs> I mean, there would be no point in engaging in this kind of widespread, you know, concerted effort at, at, at deception, if, if you weren't incredibly secretive about it and protective of, of, of the truth of what, it, what in fact was going on. Uh, once the war was done, 
Was this something that was shielded even more so than other more run-of-the-mill military operations? I mean, I guess maybe my question is how impenetrable uh, a barrier was there around this story? Or, or has it been fairly freely available but just, for some reason, largely unnoticed? The the secrecy story is a complicated one, and uh, it starts um, with the fact that a lot of the soldiers were told, don't talk about this for 50 years. But some of the soldiers say, no, they weren't told that, and they didn't feel that they, they, they were limited on talking about it. And in uh, 1945, the unit had gone home. One of the soldiers, Sebastian Messina, talked to a reporter for his local newspaper in Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, They wrote up a story about the unit, and the U.S. Army censor said, well, you can't run that story because it's secret, so they put it on a spike. But then the war ended, and the censorship office closed, and they decided that that they could run the story. Excuse me. And they did run the story, and then other people picked it up. So there was a fair amount of coverage in 1945. So... Is it secret or not? The official history was kept secret, but there were articles in 1945, and I talk about this in the book, and there were some articles, you know, in the years uh, intervening. So I think there was an attempt to keep it secret because we thought that we might, you know, be at war with, let's say, Russia at some point, and we might want to make use of this, and we don't want to um, have them learn about uh, how we did deception. But I can't say that it was ironclad. There definitely were leaks throughout the years. In fact, I will tell you that in the 1960s, when this official history is still classified, somebody created a movie script about this unit. They were trying to get a movie made uh, in 1966. So um, the secrecy story is, is one where I think the Army is trying to keep it secret, but they're also keeping a light touch on it. You know, they're not taking anybody who who writes about the story and marching them in front of a firing squad or putting them in, in jail for a long time they're uh, they're just sort of ignoring that and trying to keep it keep it really keep it really low hmm. how is it that you first encountered the story of the ghost army I first encountered the story of the ghost army 19 years ago uh, which does make me feel very old <laughs> uh, and I uh, I had a friend who emailed me on the morning of January 19th, 2005. I still have the email. Uh, and he said, hey, I met somebody who, whose uncle was in this crazy World War II unit, and she thinks somebody should make a documentary about it, and would you be willing to meet with her? Uh, and, of course, like any documentary filmmaker, I always had people telling me that they wanted to make a documentary about something, and I usually put them off. But in this case, I thought, well, this is interesting. And so I met with Martha Gavin, uh, whose uncle John Jarvie was uh, one of the soldiers. And we met at a, at a coffee shop, and she walked in carrying an armload of three-ring binders, red three-ring binders, and they were her uncle's wartime scrapbooks. And this is how I learned that um, many of the soldiers who were in the camouflage unit that did visual deception were also artists, because his scrapbooks were filled with his art, as well as with photographs and 
documents and different um, maps, all sorts of different things. Uh, and so that was my first connection with the story. And I thought, well, I'd like to make a film about this. I pitched it to the History Channel. The History Channel turned me down. And then I was sort of faced with this um, decision. Do I try to go ahead and make a film or, or try to pitch it to somebody else? And I finally said those words that you have to always watch out for, you know, how hard can it be? Uh, and I started raising money to make an independent film and then ended up taking the next you know, eight years of my life to get that film done. And, and when that film was done uh, in 2013, I can remember sitting there and watching it on PBS and thinking, well, okay, I'm done with the ghost army. And I didn't know that I was just starting because mm. so much stuff has happened since. Right. By the way, how in the world did the History Channel turn you down? I just can't imagine their reasoning. I mean, that seems like exactly the kind of story uh, that they or anybody else interested in history and wanting to attract viewers would have would have snapped up in an instant. Did they give a reason why they think, turned you down? Yeah, so they turned it down multiple times uh, over over a couple of years, and I had done some interviews uh, with soldiers and put together a trailer, and they still turned it down. And, um, you know, I think a, a few things are going on. I was just looking at this recently, and the first email that I, that I can find from an executive at the History Channel says, well, are you sure that nobody has done this story? Because I think we've done deception, and, and this, is this, how is this different? And they weren't able to kind of separate this story from other deception stories that they had done or see that it really was unique. And then I also think we were facing something um, in this period. Uh, people may remember that the History Channel had been, people referred to it as the Hitler Channel because it had so much World War II stuff on it. And they were, I think, at that point starting to not completely move away, but, but move away a little bit from that. And so I think that they kind of cast a, a dim eye on another World War II topic that um, that they thought maybe they had done something similar. And and look, I got an email from uh, that same executive uh, after the Ghost Army premiered on PBS and when we were getting all sorts of fantastic attention. And basically, she didn't say I was wrong, but she said, you know, well, okay, you, you were right. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you stuck with it and you were right. And And I, you know, I have to say, in working on this story over the years, that the thing that kept me going was just the fact that so many people who were not TV executives were saying, this is just an amazing story. I can't believe this. I can't believe you found this stuff out. I can't believe this really happened. Uh, I can't believe that you've got all these interviews and photos and everything. And I just said, you know, this material is just so good. And somebody is going to realize that we're going to find the key to selling this and make people realize what a great story it is. And, uh, and eventually after a lot of effort and, and time passed, we, we did that. And I think that, uh, I think it's really taken off since then. And, and, uh, and I think it's not because that I'm such a genius storyteller and everything I touch turns to gold, but that it's just such an incredible story. <laughs> it really is. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with uh, Rick Beyer, co-author of The Ghost Army of World War II, how one top-secret unit deceived the enemy with inflatable tanks, sound effects, and other audacious fakery. It's the story of a special unit, uh, more than a 1,000 men of the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops, known as the Ghost 
Army, who engaged in uh, all of the fakery uh, listed in, in the subtitle, uh, and probably more at a really crucial moment more, yeah. uh, in, uh, in the Second World War. One thing that you do in, in the uh, introduction of your book, which uh, I think is uh, very important, is that you talk about how this was not by any means the first instance of military deception or uh, manipulation, and that this is a history that goes back, you tell us all the way back, of course, to the Trojan horse. Um, Just touch briefly on a a couple of intriguing early examples of this kind of military deception. Uh, That will help us then, in effect, uh, better understand and appreciate sort of the unprecedented lengths to which we went with this uh, exercise in deception in the Second World War. Deception has been around as, as long as war, and um, you know the Trojan horse is a great example of that. Uh, in the Civil War, uh, General Johnston, the Confederate commander, used uh, log guns uh, in, in in placements on his front line to fool the Union forces. Uh, in the Revolutionary War, um, General Washington. Uh, had men set fires, so it uh, campfires, so it looked like his army was in one place when it was actually sneaking away to attack the British someplace else. So these methods of deception go back uh, thousands of years. What's different about the Ghost Army in World War II, the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops, is that it's the very first mobile multimedia tactical deception unit. So it's mobile. Uh, it's, it's, they, they've got trucks. They can move around to any place and carry out a deception on demand. They're dedicated to deception. That is their only job. They're not just soldiers that are grabbed from someplace else and brought in to be part of a deception. Um, and they are multimedia so that they can, whatever they're trying to convince the Germans of, whatever phony story they're selling, they can sell it on multiple channels. They can create the visuals that will sell this story. They can create the sound that will sell it, the radio, fake radio transmissions that the enemy is listening in on. Uh, they have set up to fool the spies who are left behind. And they don't expect that the enemy is going to pick up on all of that stuff. Um, they are hoping that they'll pick up a little bit here and a little bit there, and then they're kind of depending on the enemy intelligence officer uh, to put it together, to put together, oh, well, I think the Americans are doing this, and feel very proud of themselves that they've figured out what the Americans are doing, when in fact, simply what they're doing is uh, um, taking in this false message and making a false conclusion based on it. Right. In so, a sense, falling so for it. <laughs> Pardon me? Falling for it, in a sense. I mean that's part of the equation yeah. here. <laughs> right. They're not they're not figuring out the truth. They're falling for the phony message. But you know, you're you're always more likely to believe something if you think you have figured it out yourself. If I hand you the information on a silver platter, you're gonna say, Well that that looks a little too easy. But if you feel like you had to dig here and dig there and put it together, then that you're going to really believe and sell. And I think that's a real big part of the genius of the Ghost Army. Absolutely. This reminds me of of something very interesting uh, from the very opening portion of the book 
in which you talk uh, about somebody who was very much a direct participant in this, uh, a former journalist and author by the name of, of Ralph uh, Ingersoll. And uh, one of the things you, you do is, is quote him talking about exactly the best way to describe these efforts. And he didn't like the idea of deception. He thought the proper term to describe all this was manipulation. Uh, first of all, just say a word more about who Ralph Ingersoll was and then what he was getting at in this distinction between deception versus manipulation. Ralph Ingersoll was, uh, had been before the war, a celebrity author, journalist, publisher, uh, very famously published uh, the liberal newspaper PM in New York, which was a very innovative newspaper in the 1930s. Uh, he was a very well-known person. He ended up being drafted into the Army, uh, and he goes to, uh, to work in Army intelligence. Uh, and he's there involved in England with deception planning in 1943, and he's working for a guy named Billy Harris. And Billy Harris is kind of the opposite of Ralph Ingersoll. Billy Harris is a very buttoned-down military guy. He's, you know, he's not a flamboyant liberal uh, journalist and author. Uh, but these two guys worked together to create the idea of the Ghost Army and then to sell it uh, up the ranks so that it ends up getting approved. And so they're really the fathers of this unit. And in arguing for the word manipulation versus the word deception, I think gets at the heart of what this unit is all about, which is it's about you're trying to change the thinking of the enemy. You're trying to get the enemy to believe what you want them to believe. And, you know, so you, you have to start out by saying, well, what do we want the enemy to believe? And now how can we, you know, manipulate things so that they will believe that? So it's not simply a matter of, oh, we're going to set up some inflatable tanks and we're going to, we're going to put up a radio transmissions and some sound, and they'll think this unit is over here. It's kind of getting into the mind of your adversary and saying, well, what are they likely to believe? And then what can we do to kind of convince them that, that a unit is going to be moving in here and that this is going to be happening, which is really different from what's really happening? Hmm. And so it's really a mind game. There's a big mind game behind deception, manipulation, whatever you want to call it, uh, that, that really is, is, I think, at the heart of, uh, of, of, this, of this military, um, yes, I'm losing the phrase, but it's really at the heart of what the Ghost Army is doing. Right. You quote Mr. Ingersoll as saying, uh, the right term uh, should be manipulation, the art and practice of manipulating your enemy's mental processes so that they come to a false conclusion about what you are up to. <laughs> so let's talk uh, about the assemblage of this uh, impressive group of, again, more than a thousand men and, uh, and, the, and the way in which they uh, were separated into four distinct units, each one with their own uh, particular role to play. Uh, maybe even ahead of some of those specifics, maybe just talk about uh, what we know, and maybe it's a fairly, fairly limited amount that we know about what was behind the decision to undertake this. I mean, what were, what were the state of affairs in terms of our 
uh, in terms of our efforts against uh, the the the, uh, the Axis powers uh, that that led the leaders of of the army to believe that this was uh, what needed to happen. So Ralph Ingersoll and Billy Harris are in London in 1943, and they are working on plans for what's going to happen with the invasion of Europe. They have been coordinating with the British on Operation Fortitude, which is the great D-Day deception. Very different from this story, but these two guys are involved in both. Uh, and they are also trying to look at what's going to happen uh, after the invasion and what can they do to kind of give the army that's going to be landing in France every possible advantage. And Ralph Ingersoll had uh, been in North Africa uh, during the fighting there in 1942 and 43, and he had seen uh, the deceptions that the British used at the Battle of El Alamein, where they had tanks, uh, you know, um, de- who were who were that looked like trucks. They had trucks that looked like tanks. They were confusing the enemy there on the battlefield, um, and so this looked like it might be a tool that would be really useful. Uh, and so he and Harris came up with this idea of the multimedia deception unit. And Ingersoll said, you know, I thought that uh, it was a pretty crazy idea, but the Pentagon planners uh, bought it whole. And so um, when they created the deception unit, they created it um, with three types of deception. They went to war with three types of deception. And so they had three units that are each carrying out a different type of deception. The 603rd Camouflage Engineers, which had been in existence for a year and a half and was doing large-scale camouflage, suddenly is doing visual deception. Uh, They had a radio company uh, that became the Signal Company Special. They are doing radio deception. And there was a sonic company that was actually already training separately. The development of sonic deception comes about a little separately. Uh, But they're training up at Pine Camp in New York, um, and that's the 3132nd uh, signal service company special. So those are the three um, the three types of deception and the three units carrying them out. And then they assign a fourth unit, the 406 combat engineers, and they're going to be there for security. Also, they're going to have the bulldozers that are an important part of setting up inflatable tanks because if you're putting up an inflatable tank, there better be tank tracks that go to that inflatable tank. And so... The 406 is is doing that with bulldozers. Uh, And that's what they go to war with, those three types of deception, you know, carried out by those those four units. And they actually develop a fourth type of deception on the battlefield called special effects. It actually bubbles up from the bottom, from the enlisted men and the junior officers. And it it, it basically is based on the idea that they realize the enemy is going to have spies that they've left behind. And so if we were pretending to be the 75th Infantry Division moving into a certain area, there better be trucks that say 75th Infantry on them. There better be soldiers with 75th Infantry patches. There better be a 75th Infantry headquarters and a general who's coming in and out sometimes. So they end up, they go to war with three types of deception. They end up with a fourth type of deception, and all of the different units of participate in this fourth type of deception. Uh, and that's what they then carry out with through the rest of the war. Hmm. Let's talk for a few minutes about uh, the the uh, 
exploits that are outlined in the second chapter of your book, which is titled The Art Boys. And uh, this is that uh, the largest unit in the so-called Ghost Army, 379 men in the 603rd Engineer Camouflage Battalion Special. And one of the things that is really intriguing about this is the way in which it enlarges our notion or clarifies our notion of, of what the term camouflage really encompasses. I think for a lot of us, camouflage is just, you know, when a, when a brown butterfly can sit on a tree trunk and we don't see that it's there. Or, or, or likewise, you know, a hunter wearing something and then they can be in the woods and, and, and the deer they're hunting is likely not to see them or whatever. I mean, that's what we immediately think of as camouflage when in fact, clearly that term means a whole lot more than that. And particularly when it comes to the exploits of this particular group of soldiers. Tell us about that whole notion or concept of camouflage and to the, the extent to which uh, that was explored and enlarged and enhanced and perfected uh, by these uh, talented uh, soldiers? Well, camouflage is the art, uh, basically, of hiding things, and the word comes from the French, and uh, it was a lot of work was done on this in World War One, And in World War Two, camouflage... Uh, can be used in a very large-scale sense. You know, one of the things, this, this unit, the 603rd Camouflage Engineers, one of the things that they do is they camouflage an aircraft factory in Baltimore, Maryland, to make it look like a village from the air. So this is a, not a simple undertaking. This involves not, it's not just throwing a, a net over something. You have to create a sort of a 3D uh, mock-up of this village that you can then put on top of the aircraft factory. And the idea of this is that we're going to, we're gonna if, if, if for some way the Germans are able to come and bomb in, in Baltimore, that we're going to, uh, we're going to make it harder for them to find this aircraft factory. And this sort of large-scale camouflage was done in other places as well uh, at aircraft factories in, Los, in California, especially because of concerns that the Japanese might attack and, and bomb them there. And these guys were also experimenting. They were, they were taking classes that, you know, um, I've done some research into the 603rd and uh, about 30 soldiers from Pratt Institute in Brooklyn found their way into the 603rd, 30 soldiers who were artists. So, so um found their way into the 603rd, and they are they had taken camouflage courses at Pratt, so they are already kind of studying camouflage before they joined the unit. And now they're doing uh, various tests of things. There's a great um, photo on one of the pages of a, a, a paper that Bill Blast wrote, the fashion designer, who at that point was just a kid from Indiana in this unit, about the use of chicken feathers and what you could do with chicken feathers uh, for deception. <laughs> so they're really trying to think about all sorts of ways that they can carry it out. Uh, and so when the Army is looking for a unit to do deception, you know, visual deception is just the other side of camouflage. You're, one way you're trying to hide something, uh, the other you're trying to make it appear that something is there that really isn't. And so they figure that bringing in a unit that has I think 30 or 40% of the guys in the camouflage unit were artists. 
bringing in a unit that has all these artists in it is going to be a way that we can really create a high level of deception. And one of the artists, excuse me, <clears throat> one of the artists in the unit, uh, John Jarvie, talked about um, how they had to pay attention to details so that, you know, if you're setting up a, a phony artillery um, battery, you know, there's got to be uh, shells lying around that you've fired before. There's got to be kind of all the uh, detritus that would be in that area from an artillery battery being there. And so you need somebody with an artistic eye to kind of figure out that level of detail, whether it's camouflage or deception. One of the things you uh, say to describe uh, these these particular men uh, in this uh, specific unit is that while camouflage was their job, art was their love. The 603rd served as an incubator in which artists could hone their skills. And it's really wonderful that in this new edition of your book, we get so many examples of their artwork apart from the actual camouflage work in which they were engaged. Yeah, so so it's an amazing part of the story, and it's compelled me from the very first day that I was looking at John Jarvie's scrapbooks and looking at the art that he'd created. Uh, you have about 130 or 140 artists in the 603rd. They're all very young, uh, although some you know some are graduates from college and some are just you know 17 or 18 years old. Uh, and here they are all together, all these artists, and they're painting and sketching, and they're evaluating each other's work, and they're, uh, they're sometimes drawing the same things and comparing what they've drawn. One of the soldiers, Ned Harris, said that this was kind of like a, a, an art school. It was almost like a kind of a graduate course uh, that they took and that he learned more, in fact, in the 603rd uh, than he did uh, when he was in school. And so um, this really starts uh, as soon as this unit is put together. We've got drawings uh, from some of these artists from when they're, you know, back when they're a camouflage unit, when they're training in Tennessee, when they're in Maryland. And then once they, once they go overseas to England, you know, you've got just, I mean, there's literally thousands of drawings, sketches, paintings, that are done uh, overseas by this unit, kind of documenting. It, it's not about, you know, it's not drawings of, of their work because that's all classified and they can't do that. But it's bombed out villages, it's orphan children, it's, uh, you know, landscapes, it's cityscapes, it's everything that they're seeing. And over the years, you know, I have uh, collected images of a lot of this stuff and we've included huge amounts of it in the book. I I was just looking at the book uh, this morning and realizing there's hardly a page of this book that doesn't have a photo or an artwork on it. Um, and some of them have three or four. Uh, but uh, I was asked recently, well, where are all these artworks? And the answer is that they are really, most of them are still in the hands of the family members of the veterans. There's a few that have been donated to major institutions like the World War II Museum or the U.S. Army Art Collection. But most of these are still uh, out there in the world. And so, you know, one of the things that I'm proudest of in the book is that this really is 
a chance, you know, it's one of the few ways that you can actually see uh, all the artwork that these guys created in one place. And it, it, it's some pretty spectacular stuff. And, I, you know, there's artworks in there from Ellsworth Kelly. And Ellsworth Kelly, you know, became a very famous minimalist artist. And his, his post-war work uh, is very much, you know, shape and color. And you look at his wartime work, and it's much more representational. It's much more... Um, I would say nuanced, uh, but you can also kind of see the direction that he's going in. And so it gives you a real sense of what he's going to be doing. And if you look at the work that Bill Blass did during the war, he's got two notebooks that he was um, drawing in. He's drawing women's fashion. He's either drawing what he's (laughs) seeing on the streets of Paris or other places in France, or he's drawing his ideas of what he wants to see. And on the cover of this notebook, you know, he's got some notations about who he owes money to and this and that. And then in faint pencil in the upper left are the mirror image bees that become the logo of the Bill Blass fashion empire in the 80s and 90s. And so, you know, he's sitting there as a 21-year-old kid from Indiana in the Ghost Army. He's thinking about that future that he wants to create. Amazing. I also appreciate that the the book is chock full of photographs of some of the fake tanks, inflatable tanks that were created to to help give the illusion that the Allies had far more in in terms of that kind of firepower than in fact w- were were present. And 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 part of what you you tell us is that the. It's an art not only to construct those objects themselves, but also to figure out exactly where to place them and how much they should be visible versus partly obscured uh, so that the deception or manipulation is completely successful. So you have to camouflage a tank because that's what soldiers would do, but then you have to camouflage it badly so that the enemy will see it. But you don't want to camouflage it so badly that they become suspicious. So you have to find a place in the middle of all that uh, that makes sense. And that's why you have artists involved. You know, the artists did not create the inflatables. They were made at rubber factories across the U.S. But they are responsible for taking them uh, and making them look realistic. And, you know, one of the things that I think is worth pointing out is that they don't just have inflatable tanks. They have inflatable tanks and inflatable artillery, inflatable trucks, inflatable jeeps. Uh, they have basically an inflatable version of everything that an armored or an infantry division would have. They even had an inflatable like tank tow truck, and these things are huge. I mean, they're, you could probably fit two tanks on top of the trailer part of this. Uh, and it's a huge thing. But you think about it, if you had one of those and you, you had it parked someplace under some trees, uh, you know, camouflaged a little bit, and the enemy saw that, they would say, oh, well, if a tank uh, tow truck is here, then uh, then the tanks must be around someplace. You know, we have to look for them. Uh, and so they really had everything they needed to, to create a stunningly um, realistic visual approximation of an armored division, hmm. you know, being in a certain spot. It's and incredible. they did it time after time. It's incredible. On top of it, uh, yet another facet of the work of the Ghost Army 
involved what uh, you summarize as sonic deception with uh, extensive experiments beginning as early as, 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 as 1942. You write, their mission was to simulate the sounds of troop movement and activity, especially at night when enemy observation posts could hear but not see. Uh, explain the kind of sound recordings that we are talking about and how careful they were to try to create uh, sound recordings that would be, in a sense, pers- persuasive or entirely believable. So, uh, first of all, they what they did is they, they went to the U.S. Army Proving Ground in Fort Knox, Kentucky, and they spent a couple of weeks there recording all sorts of sounds. Um, Tanks driving on a flat surface, tanks driving up a hill, tanks driving down a hill, uh, men digging in at night, well, it doesn't matter, digging, men digging in uh, to a position, uh, men assembling pontoon bridges, just everything that you can imagine. Not battle sounds, because that wouldn't be convincing to play battle sounds from loudspeakers, but sounds of troops on the move, troops uh, digging in at the front. And they recorded these on these 16-inch glass transcription platters, the same thing that was used to, uh, you know, by singers when they're recording hit songs. Uh, and then what they did, they went to Europe with this collection of sound effects records. And But for any particular deception, they would mix the sounds together of what they're trying to convince the Germans in that deception. So let's say that they're trying to convince them that tanks are going down a road and then up a hill and then down a hill and then pulling in, turning off, and people are starting to dig in. So they're going to create the sounds, mix them together in that order. And then they could play them from 500-pound speakers mounted on the back of half-tracks. And it gets even a little bit more uh, nuanced because you can actually then time the, the, the stuff you can have the half-track that's five miles away start first, and then the half-track that's two miles away starts, you know, 15 minutes later, and then the one that's closest to you is starting 15 minutes after that. And so the sound can kind of move. It gets closer. It's not all coming from one source. So it's a very rich means of deception. And as far as its impact on the enemy, I mean, this is theater of the mind. You know, if you're in your house at night, and you're trying to go to sleep, and you start hearing some sounds outside, you can build up this nightmarish picture of burglars trying to break in or something is happening when it's really just a tree branch, you know, brushing against your house. But it's the same idea for a German soldier who's across the river. He's hearing the sounds of tanks moving in for hour after hour. Uh, he's going to believe that they're really there, and he—I mean—he's going to conjure up a whole picture in his mind. Maybe he'll actually, you know, think that he can see the tanks. We did have one of the Ghost Army soldiers, Dick Syracuse, who said that uh, he, when he was out there with the Sonic unit, that after a while he said, "I began to see tanks. They weren't there, but I—I I started wondering. Oh, maybe the, really there is a tank there. I think I see it." And he said it was psychologically unnerving. I mean, that is the power of sonic deception. Hmm. The other thing, and we only have a couple of minutes to talk about it, I'm afraid, is uh, the efforts to create and simulate radio broadcasts 
that uh, would would seem to be uh, absolutely authentic and could also play a, a, a very important role in, in, in deceiving and manipulating the enemy. You write at one po- point, Ghost Army officers carefully studied the pattern of radio transmission broadcast by the unit that where they were in, assigned to impersonate. Uh, so quickly, just tell us a bit about this act of impersonation and how tricky it was to, uh, to make all of this uh, realistic and effective. Radio deception is not as sexy as inflatable tanks or sound effects, but it's kind of too bad we don't pay more attention to it because it's one of the most effective tools that they had. So you're trying to, you know, if you have the radio trucks of a division, you can impersonate all of the the signals that they would send. You can replicate all of that. And so you make it seem to enemy officers who are listening in that a real division is moving in. And uh, so, first of all, they studied the uh, way that units sent signals. You know, sometimes the 4th Division might put four dots at the beginning of any message they transmit. Simple stuff, more complicated stuff. But then they also studied the sending style of uh, the telegraphers for uh, that they're impersonating. Because, you know, so all of this is trafficked by Morse code on the radio. And the Germans were so sophisticated, they could identify individual American operators. So the Ghost Army soldiers had to learn to mimic the style of the radio operators that they are impersonating. So they would sit there for a while, watch somebody send. Then the Ghost Army operators would start to send on their radio set. Then they switch off the real radio operator set. They switch on the Ghost Army radio set. And now the real troops are moving in one direction. And the ghost army is making it seem like they're moving someplace else. And they managed to fool the Germans. They did not cotton to the fact that they were getting these phony radio messages sent against them. Uh, So this was a very effective means of fooling the enemy, Uh, probably one of the most effective they had. They did a a battle of the Bose deception that was radio only uh, because they sent everybody else back behind the lines, but they kept the radio guys because that was such an important way to fool the enemy. Hmm. Well, this is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of this uh, amazing and fascinating story told so incredibly well in this book that is now available in an updated edition. Again, the book is titled The Ghost Army of World War II, How One Top Secret Unit Deceived the Enemy with Inflatable Tanks, Sound Effects, and Other Audacious Fakery, published by Princeton Architectural Press, and uh, one of its authors, Rick Beyer. Rick Beyer, thank you so much for bringing this fascinating story to the world, uh, for sharing it so effectively, and for being my morning show guest. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and tell this story.